Welcome to the College Sports Insider presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. So we are getting to that time of the year where even if you're not a real devoted basketball fan, you're going to start paying attention. That's because we're coming up on the, the college basketball tournaments, the NCAA's Final Four uh, for both men and for women coming up. And we're delighted to have Lynn Holtzman with us. Uh, Lynn, among other things, and we'll talk about her background in the world of college sports, but currently the NCAA Vice President of Women's Basketball. And I'm going to say that you're the one person who's responsible for everything that has to do with the women's <laughs> tournament. I'm giving you far more chores than you have to do, but you're there. You're the, the, the face out in front of this. So, um, Lynn, thank you for joining us and for spending some time talking with us about this. I want to start, before we talk about today's tournament, I want to go back to get your perspective on this, all right? You were a, a basketball player at Kansas State back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm curious as to how the tournament was viewed back then by, by you and the other female college players in the country. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, to answer that question, I, I think that we have made absolutely enormous strides to get to the point that we're at today. What I can remember back to my experience at Kansas State, and frankly, even in high school, is that it was a it was a rare opportunity to see women's basketball on TV, for example. And um, I can remember the the old the program of USC and Cheryl Miller, and being able to see it may have been on CBS. I, I don't even know what network it was on, but just simply being able to see the championship game, and that was pretty much the only opportunity you you had to see women's basketball other than in person. Um, so today, obviously, we've made tremendous strides, and you look at the type of coverage that women's basketball gets through the regular season, through um, platforms such as conference networks, but also ESPN, and then the NCAA Division I tournament itself, for example, where all of the games are available with our partner on ESPN. Um, regardless of the time and the opportunities through broadcast platforms, you know, still the the ultimate accomplishment you can have as a college student athlete is to get to an NCAA championship and legitimately compete for an NCAA title. You know, I never personally had that opportunity, and that actually serves as a driver for me to make sure that the experience that our student athletes have when they get a chance to play in an NCAA women's basketball championship at Division One, Two, II, or Three, it is something that will be a lifelong memory for them. I'm wondering if, if, if you look at this the way I do in terms of a springboard for the popularity of women's basketball. I was, uh, I got to cover the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. I was with NBC News at the time. I was hosting the Today Show on the weekends, so we took our show, the weekday today and the weekend today show, took it down to Atlanta. We were there for three weeks. And I got to see an, a number of the women's basketball games. And, and if you remember, that was just a, a fabulous team, and they had a great run through that. And it was shortly after that the, the WNBA got started. But I also got the sense. And both of my children were, my daughter and son, were both Division One athletes. And, you know, so I, having been a Division One athlete myself, I sort of always looked at these things. And I got the sense that that was a major springboard for women's basketball, uh, and especially women's college basketball. Did you get that same feeling? Yeah. It, you know, as I think back to that time, um, you know, in the mid-90s, I was coming off of my playing days at, at K-State, and getting involved, um, starting my athletic administration career. But I can remember back then that the success that our women's teams were having at the Olympic, at the international level, um, positioning themselves and actually winning gold medals, um, that did serve 
the sport very well because those players who had become um, had I guess refined their craft and really got to be really good at the college level and a little more notoriety was being provided to them whether it was through as I just described some of these broadcast television opportunities or through Sports Illustrated coverage when they actually have in their college basketball preview they finally had things relative to women's basketball Um, those players started gaining their own um, personalities. You know, and I think about later on when you had the 99ers, the women's soccer soccer yeah. team, and what they did in the World Cup and with the Olympics and everything, some of that path was forged by women's basketball and what our Olympic, Olympic teams did and our national teams did at the international level. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Let's jump forward now to, the, to the, the tournament as it is today. And to give our listeners a, a sense, uh, how is it that the – the Final Four venue is chosen. How does that happen? Well, it's pretty similar to the same way that the, the our men's basketball committee does it for the men's Final Four. So we have a committee of membership representatives that um, ultimately make the final selections. But prior to that, we go through a bid process, as do all NCAA championships for cities um, that want to host an NCAA championship. For, so in the case of the women's Final Four, um, cities have an opportunity to bid. There are certain bid specifications they have to meet, such as the type of arena that we want to play in. Women's Final Four decision was made several years ago that we our target primarily is um, typically NBA or NHL-oriented mm-hmm. arenas, That the size of that. Um, I say that typically because we actually have um, an opportunity coming up in a few years that we'll be back in San Antonio in the Alamo Dome, and we have a potential of having over 90,000 fans in there. But comparatively, this upcoming year in Tampa, we're a little over 19,000 in mm-hmm. the arena that we'll be playing at there, an NHL arena. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cities submit the and get I, all their let information. Let me just jump in for a yeah. sec because I, I know there are a lot, of, and I've been to them, but I know there are a lot of people that like that. Yep. I know that there are a lot of people that say we understand the big buildings and getting 60-some thousand in it, but I've heard people say this is college basketball. Exactly. And we like being in an, an arena. It's, it's funny. You don't usually use the term intimate when you're talking about 19,000 people, but it's more intimate mm-hmm. if you're in that kind of arena, and it feels like a basketball arena. So there, I, I know there are a lot of folks who, who say, yeah, we're, we like it yep. in that size. Yeah. Absolutely. And and in fact, a lot of the words you just used are reasons um, and rationale behind why that decision was made. It was to make sure that we created the atmosphere, we were able to create the atmosphere we want around our games. It is a with the way those arenas are laid out and the proximity to the court and that you can really feel and and the fan and the energy in that arena. um, There is something to be said for um, making sure that our student athletes can feel the fact that they're playing in front of an arena that, if it's not at capacity, is sold out, as we've experienced last year in Columbus at the Final Four, and we certainly anticipate it's going to be the case this year in Tampa. So it's a very intentional decision by women's basketball to put our game in a place that is best for women's basketball and best for our student athletes in that championship experience. Yeah. How about the the selection process? Again, I I don't think people really, the hardcore fans know how it's done. But I I think there are some folks out there that think that there's somebody, and I've mentioned this before when I was talking to Dan Gavitt about this, that there's there's somebody, either you or Dan in the the men's case, who sit in an office and say, well, I like these teams here, so let's put them into the tournament. How does that actually reality happen? Uh, similar to the selection for future Final Four sites, it's our Division One women's, in the case of Division One, our women's basketball committee that is charged with that. So they're charged with 
um, the selection of teams beyond the automatic qualifiers. The 32 conferences each have an AQ, and then to complete the field of 64 teams for women's basketball with at-large selected teams. And then the committee is also responsible for the um, seating and bracketing of those teams. In the case of the at-large selections, the committee works the entire season in evaluating the teams, watching numerous games. They are assigned, all the committee members are assigned at least um, as a primary or a secondary, at least three conferences that they, it's called a conference monitoring program. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an inordinate amount of meetings and calls. Um, for women's basketball, we also have uh, what's called um, two top 16 reveals throughout the season. Mm-hmm. So that also allows the committee to really dig into um, a lot of the programs even earlier into the season as they're as they're d- starting to to have conversation around where those what programs um, are are at the upper half of the bracket if you will and start to have conversations um, starting to do some pre-work already about where they may ultimately end up being seated in the tournament bracket itself when they get to that selection time period. Talk a little bit about, I think what's enjoyable about this is it's sort of the notion of pulling the curtain back on how this all happens because the fans turn on the television set or however they're they're consuming this and they see the finished product, Mm -hmm. which is the games, great games, all the way up to the final four and the championship game. But let's, let's talk about the behind the scenes, things like logistics. So... How then do do you go about, the NCAA go about, you start off with 64 teams, all right? You know where the first game is going to be playing, but you don't know who's playing the second game. And then all of a sudden you've got to make your next round decisions. How, from a, a most basic perspective, how do you make the arrangements to get the teams where they have to be, you know, game to game, weekend to weekend? Well, fortunately, we have people within our office and also other entities that we work closely with that they're experts in those areas, <laughs> um, moving large groups of people to places throughout the country on a very under a very quick timeline. And that includes through different modes of transportation, whether it's ground transportation or through um, flying, whether it's charter aircraft or otherwise. Um, so it, do, it really does take a village to pull off this these grand events, these championships, Um, And there's a lot of complications and challenges that come with that because uh, what's added to this is at the same time those things are happening for the women's tournament, it's also happening at the same time for our Division I men's tournament, which is also happening at the same time for the NIT. Uh, that the NCAA also oversees. And and there's a responsibility for transportation, getting those teams to the place so they can play their games in a timely fashion, have time to practice on the courts, get ready, and then if they happen to win, they're staying. If they happen to lose, then at what point in time are they being moved back to campus because you need that aircraft or that bus for for other teams. So it is a monumental task, and I... I'm very thankful for those and grateful (laughs) for those that that is what their focus is at that period of time. And we really just have to kind of turn it over to those experts to allow Mm -hmm. that to happen. But it's a it's a pretty crazy, complicated process. Well, it's a good thing to surround yourself with good, talented people and say, "Okay, do your job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know how to do this. I'll do my job. You do your job. Just make sure everybody's there when the ball goes up Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the tip ball starts. Again, going back to, to your perspective on this, right, as a player. Um, Kansas State in the 90s, you, you um, uh, got into sports administration. You have been a commissioner of a conference, the WAC. Um, you, you were here at the NCA for a number of years, have come back now. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the change in how 
um, how the game has been covered by the media and especially the television aspect of it. Mm-hmm. What have you seen change over your years? Well, there's, I think there's been a lot of changes, and we've seen this across college sports, and women's basketball has also been a beneficiary of this. When we've had, for example, conferences that have um, launched their own networks, um, whether that's in the traditional linear space or in the digital space, and digital provided a lot of opportunities for um, a myriad of sports to get out there for so that they can be viewed and consumed, whether it's by parents and fans or otherwise. And women's basketball has been a benefit, has been a beneficiary of that as well. Um, when I was commissioner of the West Coast Conference, we had launched when I was before I was appointed commissioner. When I was chief operating officer, we launched the W. TV. I said the whack. I meant the yeah. West Coast Conference. It's okay. it's My okay. apologies. Um, Got to go with the West Coast Conference right. though, with, <laughs> yeah. with the successful basketball teams They're there. Great. I was just out of Pepperdine. I was, I was just out of Pepperdine about two weeks ago. Yep. First of all, yep. what a fabulous campus it is! But, but oh, great athletics there. Campuses. Yeah, great athletics yeah. there. Yep. But the um, those digital platforms and then uh, the conference networks that were thirsty for so much content, it's allowed women's basketball to be viewed and to be viewed, frankly, worldwide in ways that um, wasn't available before because you were so limited with the old traditional linear formats. Add on top of that everything that's now available in the way that we can communicate and promote and market our programs relative to social media and the different platforms with that. It, it has provided so much additional exposure for our sport, for our student-athletes, for our programs, for our universities. It allows us to tell the stories of our student-athletes in a much different way. And for women's basketball in particular, one, we know one of our brand attributes in women's basketball is the sense of community. We are creating community. There's a different connectedness that fans want with our student-athletes. There's a different accessibility. It's almost, um, and I've heard people say it's almost less corporate. Bolster that. Almost less corporate. Now, I'm not trying mm-hmm. to, I don't mean that in, in a term of derision for any other sport, but I've heard people say there is something, uh, I, they've used the word less corporate, uh, more intimate, more community engaging in terms of, you know, my daughter was a, a women's lacrosse player, and we saw that, I think. And my son was a, a lacrosse player, both played lacrosse at Yale, and it was different. The, the sense of community was a little bit different, but both wonderful. But a little bit different. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, in terms absolutely. Of women's basketball? And we and we see um, how that happens at a wide variety of programs over the years. And it's actually these programs have served as as examples for others, a way to um, grow local fan bases. So um, one that I'll point out just as an example is that on um, the success that Mississippi State has seen over the the last five six years. Um, obviously they've been really successful on the court and they've done a tremendous job building their program based on winning games. But one of the things that their um, Vic Schaefer, their coach and their program has intentionally done is um, had a strategy about how to engage their community and to fill up their arena when their women's team is playing. Um, One of the natural things that has happened over the years and there with women's basketball is that after the game, a simple example, the student-athletes, the women's basketball student-athletes stay on the court. They go into the stands. They're, they're sitting there um, providing autographs to the same young girl for 15 home games. And there's a different connectedness then with that young girl's family. Um, and you're creating hopefully a lifelong fan for Mississippi State in this example, um, women's basketball. But for, for, for my purposes, I, I see it as an opportunity for us to create a women's basketball fan um, for, for that individual. Hopefully that young girl then plays. Hopefully that young girl continues at, if at whatever point in time decides to um, that 
not able to play any longer, but still has this connectiveness to our sport. That's something about the community that we're creating here and some of the unique things that we hear from our fans about why they like women's basketball and why they encourage others to um, enjoy the game itself and to connect to the program and to the community at large. What do you think some of the significant changes have been in the game, women's basketball, but let's say back from when you played to now? Um, well, certainly since I played uh, speed of the game, um, I would never say back then, nor would my coaches ever say I was the fastest on the court. I may have been you're, you're um, a defensive a little, stopper. May have, been, may have been physical, right. but um, I think the speed of the game, I think right. the the skills have continued to enhance. I mean, we've seen the athleticism of female athletes, mm. period, over the last um, 10, 15 years. Um, just be on display. We've seen that with Serena Williams, for example, in tennis. But in women's basketball, there used to always be this criticism of, um, well, they don't dunk. Well, we actually do have great women athletes that are able to dunk. And it's not a dominant aspect of the game. But when you are able to see this athleticism uh, of our of our student athletes and, and how they play the game, I mean, it's pretty phenomenal. Well, it's, and then, just to for a second, I, one of my favorite comments, and I've been a fan of, of, of women's basketball. My daughter played in high school. It used to take them to the garden to mm-hmm. see the great Ann Donovan teams playing back then. Um, but I, my favorite quote about women's basketball, and I'm, I'm sure you remember this, is the legendary John Wooden when he was still alive. And he was asked once about the state of the game of basketball. And he said he loved most watching women's basketball now because he felt that uh, exceptional athletes – but, but in his mind, his words, playing the game as a team – uh, which I thought was uh, was an enormous compliment, especially considering who it came from. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that, that I would say that continues to hold true today. I mean, a lot of the work we've done over this past year as we're looking at how we continue to grow and develop women's basketball and, and as a community, so not just the NCAA, but partners such as USA Basketball, the WBCA, National Federation of High Schools, the youth organizations, whatever, how do we best continue to grow our game together? Those aspects of our game continue to hold true. It's the teamwork. It's the unity. It's the diversity that we have in our sport, diversity and inclusion. There's, there's, um, it, there's numerous values that we have in women's basketball that we want to continue to capitalize on. The teamwork often, when you think about playing on the court, also gets, uh, it also often gets referenced also that women's basketball has, quote, better fundamentals or different fundamentals mm-hmm. in the men's game. Um, which may or may not be true, but it's something that our fans gravitate yeah. toward. And I think that's what John Wooden was talking about. It's more of a purity aspect yeah. of the game, right. recognizing that on the court, one of the most beautiful things about basketball is that you cannot play the game by yourself. You really can't. You have to be able to pass because you got to pass the ball to get it onto the court <laughs> in order to actually for the game to take place. And how you work with one another offensively, whether it's coming off screens or um, a motion offense or defensively, and it's it's a beautiful game. And, and we see in women's basketball um, how if you don't have those um, parts of the game nailed down and the dribbling and the passing and everything and really crisp that you're – your, pro- your program probably is not as successful. The Yukons, the success we've seen at Yukons and the Notre Dames and the South Carolinas now, um, all of these, pro- Baylor, um, Oregon, I could go on and on because our parity has um, taken tr- a tremendous jump over the last few years. But if you watch those games, it truly does come back to the athleticism and the fundamentals that our student athletes are displaying on the court. How do you anticipate the, the, the changes that will take place in, for your tournament 
as as we move into an, an, an era of, of streaming and different means of consumption of, of our products, especially sports products, do you see it having a significant impact at all on the tournament? Um, not necessarily. I mean, we, we have a, um, as everyone's, as most everyone's probably aware, the women's tournament is um, broadcast in all, all of the games through our partner with at ESPN. Um, so that is our primary platform for the Division One championship. Now, I could foresee that um, that how ESPN continues to market and leverage and help promote our game and the championship and the excitement around it, um, that's where I think we're going to make the greatest strides because, again, we're trying to enhance and increase the fan base and for people to really um, appreciate and become fans of, of college women's basketball. Um, so it is through the various platforms that, and the opportunities that we have. We're gonna, that's where I think we're going to continue to see the growth. Last question for you, and, and this kind of touches on some of the things you've already mentioned, but I, I want to ask it anyway. If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I understand that your job is NCAA, you run uh, the tournament, uh, a, a vice president of women's basketball, and they said, yeah, I've never watched the women's tournament. And essentially what they're asking you is, why, sh- why should I? What is it about this tournament, the lead-up, all the, the early round games, the lead-up, and the final four, the championship game? What would you say to them as to what the attraction and, and why somebody who is not a fan might still enjoy it? Um, I probably have a series of questions. Uh, <laughs> not necessarily rank order. One of them I would, be, I would ask is, are you a fan of basketball? Mm-hmm. And if they, they were to say yes, then why haven't you watched women's basketball? Um, I would ask them if they have they had heard of the excitement around our games last year in Columbus where we had two semifinal games that went into overtime and we had an unbelievable shot by a student athlete, Arike, at Notre Dame to win the championship game. And people today are still talking about those games from last year. And that's not just because it's women's basketball. It's because it was a tremendous sporting event. Um, and I would encourage encourage this person just to, to – um, to give it a chance and to come into our world and to really truly feel and experience what it means to be in the middle of a college sport event at at the highest level. Well, somebody who watches the games and has for many, many years, I would agree with you entirely. Lynn, it's a pleasure. Thanks for spending some time helping us understand a little bit about what's going on. I know you're really busy and you will be for the next couple of weeks. So we, we appreciate you taking the time. Good luck with the tournament. You'll be well. Thank you. That's it for this edition, then, of the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. Thanks for joining us, and we will look forward to having you join us again real soon.